Nice. You know. and, and, and mentors as well? Yes. Yes. Nice. Yeah. Well, I, I, I probably want to cycle back to that, but I, I want to now take a big step back yes. and just formally begin. Absolutely. But do me a favor and just share, tell us your name and tell, and, uh, and, <laughs> <laughs> yes. and then uh, how, to, how it's spelled. And then okay. the primary organization that you want to be identified with, so, you know, okay. for our, our titles. All right. Um, my name is Akila Shirelles, A-Q-E-E-L-A, Shirelles, S-H-E-R-R-I-L-L-S. And the organization that I'm representing is Resources for Human Development California. Beautiful. Now, you know, I, I just want to dive right into the heart of some of what I want to talk to you about because... As a man who's been initiated into a gang, you know, yes. you, I think, can speak really effectively to how important initiation is mm -hmm. and at the same time how important it is that, that the initiates are uh, directed in a positive direction yes. as opposed to what a gang might be, you know? Right. I want to get into some of that. So. Okay, okay. Um, I think that in, in speaking about that, it's important to talk about the whole context of gangs and what they are and what they're not. Um, you know, first I want to say that, that gangs are surrogate families. Um, and very, very few of the individuals who participated in gangs are actually committing violent crime and murder. Um, many of the folks who join gang members, uh, I mean, who join gangs, um, do it out of a sense of wanting to belong because actually they lost a nuclear family to the real killer, which is poverty, which is planned um, uh, in a capitalist system, unfortunately. Somebody has to be poor in order for somebody to be rich. The title gang in itself actually is a dehumanizing term um, in this culture, because we could say that on you know, Central and 33rd, two 14-year-old boys were shot kill and killed, and folks would be horrified. And at the same time, um, if you say two 14-year-old gang members were shot and killed, people would be like, good, like kill them again um, because of the dehumanizing effect of this label called gangs. So, um, what would you call them? Oh, yeah. Yeah, this uh, fridge, um, we can't even control it, honestly. Oh, it's just automatic, man. Yeah. Oh, yeah. there he is. He just pulled the plug. <laughs> No, I, I don't think it's not going to melt your ice cream. No, I don't think he pulled the plug. It just it'll come on and off like that. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. What, what, so, what term would you use? Um, I would call them surrogate families. Okay. You know, uh, for a lack of better terms. Right. Um, and when you say most of people join to have that sense of belonging, I mean, I would be more inclined to say all, really. I right. Because everybody needs that sense of belonging. Yes. It's just a matter of where they can find it. That's right. Well, you know, Connie Rice, who was a prominent civil rights attorney here in the city of L.A., did a report for the city of Los Angeles about eight years ago. And one of the things that she discovered was that less than three to five percent of so-called gang members are actually committing violent crime and murder. And, you know, I would venture to say it's probably more like one to two percent. And that, that one to two percent of, of young men have serious uh, mental health issues that go unaddressed. Um, you know, from the, the sexual, physical, and psychological abuse that they experience in the household to the trauma and the violence that they suffer through on a daily basis in the culture, um, especially if they're black and brown boys, um, because we still live in a culture that doesn't view them and see them necessarily. Um, the response to violence in our community is law enforcement, more police. 
It's not therapists and counselors and you know uh, interventionists to help people deal with the vicarious trauma and the and the PTSD um, resulting from the violence. It's just you know oh those individuals are violent. They're predisposed to violence, and this is in the in the psyche of the of the American imagination, um, and unfortunately um, we're subject to it um, often. So, you know, um, being initiated into the gang is, um, uh, you know, it's a, it's a deep process, you know, um, because everybody doesn't get an opportunity to, uh, to, to go there in a sense, you know. To me, initiation is a, is a deep analysis and inquiry into the circumstances that brought you to that particular place. So, you know, growing up and, and watching Jordan Down Housing Projects, um, you know, I can remember, you know, pre-joining the gang and, uh, and post-joining the gang, you know, that it's, uh, it's like a fraternity, it's like a club. It's like, you know, um, you grow up in the neighborhood. I think that most young folks, you know, uh, it's their responsibility to, in, in a sense, live on the edge, to not want to inherit the belief systems and the ideas of their parents. So they rebel against that idea. And in the rebelling, um, they form relationships in partnerships with other folks who were having a similar experience. And, um, you know, I remember graduating from elementary school, and um, this was in 19, uh, 1980. Uh, 1979 was like one of the first significant murders that happened in our neighborhood at our, at our junior high school between like uh, the brothers from the Nickerson Gardens and the brothers from the Jordan Downs, because Watts is, um, has about, actually has the largest concentration of public housing west of the Mississippi. So these four big housing developments sit on like a perfect 90 degree angle. And there's a railroad track that kind of run in between them. And the Nickerson's on one side, you know, which are blood neighborhoods and the Crips on the other side uh, are the, you know, um, is on the other side of the track. So this significant murder happened at Markham in 79. So in 1980, 81, when I was going to Markham, I was being initiated. So the first thing that was told to us was that, hey, when you get to school up there, um, Somebody asks you where you from, that's cold language for we're about to whip your ass. And so I'm like, okay, you know, so we terrified, you know, because, you know, man, these cats is, we've been conditioned to believe that this is the enemy on the other side of the tracks. And back then, you know, it was seventh grade through ninth grade. And sometimes, you know, these ninth graders looked like they was huge cats with you know, beards and stuff and everything. I mean, <laughs> junior high school. So when someone came up to me and asked me where I was from, you know, uh, I did what was told to me. You, you take off because that's cold word. And um, so the guy asked me where I was from and I, and I punched him. And um, we had a fight and from that day on, just by virtue that I had a fight with this dude because he asked me where I was from and I was from the Jordan Downs, I was automatically associated with being from Grape Street from baby low. And you know, you have a choice. You could either say, no, nah, no, I'm not, and then you lose the, the support, you know, from your crew. And then when these dudes come back to get you, you by yourself, or you say, yeah, you claim the neighborhood and you inherit the support from, you know, from your comrades. And essentially that's what it became for me. And um, you grew up with all of these dudes. I mean, I've been knowing these cats all my life. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's 
So, I mean, what I hear in that is partly it's an impossible choice. Mm -hmm. Right. That <laughs> nobody should be forced to make. <laughs> right. But, but what I'm really interested in is kind of teasing apart mm. what are some of the really valuable parts of an initiatory process, you know, where you do feel like you have that uh, surrogate family, where you yes. do feel like, okay, I finally belong. Somebody recognizes the value that I have as a human being. Somebody's helping me to understand my purpose in life and what I might be here to do to contribute to society. And, well, it seems to me one of the problems is you don't have elders right. in these circles. And as long as you don't have elders, you're not going to have that wisdom to sort of direct those energies necessarily in a really positive community-based way. Right. You know, that's, that's one problem. Uh, anyway, so yeah, help us tease apart those well, differences. Well, I would say that, uh, that, you know, people die young in the neighborhood. So at 21, 22, sometimes you feel like you're a grown man because, you know, from 12, 13 years old, you've been possibly making decisions on your own. Um, and, and, and this is not happening in the vacuum, you know, I mean, you know, I think that it's important to understand like what's happening, you know, um, you know, America as a culture has doesn't have a necessarily rites of passage process, you know, for for young men and young women coming of age. I mean, you know, this is a melting pot, you know, so all of the cultures that came here who had, um, you know, like I think the Latino culture have has much more of a of, a, of an intact culture than, say, African-Americans or even white Americans in a sense. Um, you know, at 16, folks have a quinceanera, you know, um, that, that kind of represents this transition from, uh, uh, you know, from being a girl to becoming a young woman. Whereas in my neighborhood, the, the rites of passage was in, you know, uh, negative, positive, you, you know, um, I, I don't know, you know, but... Um, Folks had a really, had a. You really don't. I mean, I can't. I can't believe. I mean, well, there must be parts of it that you feel like this has tremendous positive value, and there must be other parts that you think. Uh, I'm not well, so sure. see, the thing is, is this: is that all of these things actually inform the life. Okay, it informs the life process because we're not our experiences. The experiences that happen to us only inform who we become. It doesn't. It doesn't define who we are. So you know, we live in a culture that has defined people by what they do and what they have. Um, and, and, I, and I tend to take a different, well, you know, conceptual worse, frame. By what their skin color is or how much money they have. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, you grew up in the neighborhood. Um, what you see around you is hustlers, drug dealers, you know, athletes, you know, and you, you choose one of those things. So you choose, you know, to be a gangster. And a part of that whole kind of like mythology is that you're initiated, you know, by having a fight or getting, you know, whooped on and, and that's how you get into, you know, into the brotherhood. And then you started, you start to um, like engage all of the things that's associated with that. So one of them is about going to, to jail. So jail is a part of a right, to, uh, is a part of the initiation and rites of passage in the neighborhood. As kids, one of the things that we wanted to do was touch every single yard, you know, juvenile hall, you know, California Youth Authority, the key prisons, because you know, the big homies was up there, you know? And you go to the big, you go to the pen and you meet, you know, the big homies who school you and give you information and knowledge. Some of the most brilliant cats that I've met in my life, man, I've met, you know, and I've never been to prison, but 
through my, through my process with working with the mayor I can and Jim Brown, we ran programs inside of prison because there's a correlation between, you know, shots that are called in the prison that affects the street and vice versa. You know, so I had an opportunity to go inside the institutions and meet a lot of cats that I only heard about who are legends in the neighborhood just through word. And then I go into the pen and I'm facilitating our life skills curriculum and I meet, you know, some of these G's. And I'm like, I've heard that you was like big evil, big killer. And, and they're like, little homie, blah, 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 this, that. And I'm like, wow, man, this cat is brilliant, you know? So it's like there's this, um, I think that what we've been conditioned to believe about the gang culture. And, and, and to me, it's like you got every aspect of, just like in American society, you got, you got killers in the neighborhood, you got hustlers, you got hood soldiers, you got peacemakers, you got all of the different elements that exist within the gang culture. So everybody is not, that's why I say that less than three to five percent are actually committing violent crimes and murder. The majority of these cats are beautiful, profound dudes, you know? So there's a lot of, you know, elders in the neighborhood in a sense who, who are wise, who are providing direction. Um, the thing is, is that they're under-resourced. You know, they're, they're trapped by some of their past. You know, you commit a felony in this culture, and even though you pay your debt to society, you do 10, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years or whatever, you're still considered a criminal, a convict, an ex-con for the rest of your life. Even after you paid your debt. We all make mistakes as young folks. But if you're black in this country, you know, you're indicted forever, you know, because of your skin color. So there is, there, is a, uh, um, there is a profound kind of rites of passage process. And unfortunately, it's connected to, like in urban neighborhoods that are war zones, um, it's connected to the prison system. You know, one of the arguments I've always made is that uh, one of the greatest community, untapped community resources are so-called gangs and communities. Yes. Because these are people that have been initiated Yes. You know, and they, they are already a part of a highly functioning, very effective family right. or team. Yes. You know, and, and that the big challenge that, that remains for us as a greater society is direction. How yes. can we direct this resource in a new way yes. to, to get them to revitalize and rebuild communities rather than destroy them at some level? Well, I would say that one of the things that we can do is first we have to stop judging it. And we have to remove the labels and we have to see these young folks, these adults, as human beings who have been wounded. And, and make a, a, a real strategic investment in the personal lives of these folks so that they actually connect with their life purpose and what their destiny for us. So my belief is that, that we're never going to get rid of gangs. You know, um, it's, it's like what we have to do is take the structure because it's already, uh, you know, um, uh, a fraternity, a brotherhood, or sisterhood in a sense, because there's women that are heavily involved with this as well. And we have to facilitate a conversation with the key players in which we make the unwritten rules of the street written amongst those who choose to live the lifestyle. Um, I think that that's ultimately, like, um, like, what needs to happen. Because if you ask most folks, I mean, gangs have become almost like a cliche. You know, folks, oh, I'm from here, I'm from there, and you, I live by the rules of the street, homie. What are the rules? And they're like, huh? Um, they'll tell you a couple of lines probably from something they've seen on TV, you know? So it's like, let's pull individuals together. Let's facilitate an authentic conversation about, you know, 
what are the rules that govern us? You know, what are the things that we should do and shouldn't do, you know, in relationship to each other and in relationship to the communities in which we live in? And, you know, um, and then I think from, from that particular place, um, you know, something really profound can happen. Um, I think that there will be much more organization. I think that um, a different type of commitment can be made to, uh, to empowering the neighborhood in which we live in. Because we know that, the, the, you know, the gangs kind of grew out of the whole 60s movement. Um, and they were co-opted in a sense and turned on each other. You know, 1980s, crack cocaine dumped into the neighborhood. You know, individuals selling drugs. I mean, we, we weren't manufacturing no drugs. We weren't manufacturing no Uzis and AK-47s. All of this stuff, you know, later we discovered FBI, CIA, they were all engaged in this process, similar to what J. Edgar Hoover was doing with COINTELPRO, to destroy black leadership, to destroy, you know, um, uh, communities of color so that they wouldn't organize and, um, and change their own realities. Um, because, you know, this government. Government is about the regulation and control of behavior of people. So, um, you know, so that's what I believe. I believe that we have to um, facilitate a strategic conversation with those who are the key players within gangs, define the unwritten rules of the street um, so that they become written amongst those who choose to live the lifestyle, and, and we can shift the whole reality of what we know as gangs in this culture. What is the next step? So, so I, I believe, again, that what we need to do is host a strategic conversation, an authentic conversation with the key players in games, and facilitate um, uh, a dialogue in which we make the unwritten rules of the street written amongst those who choose to live the lifestyle. Because um, I think that from that, from that place, um, you know, something profound can actually be birthed. And so, you know, organizing the peace treaty in the neighborhood was, um, it was God sent. I mean, it was God inspired, you know, or, you know, if, if folks might utilize, choose to use different terms, it was inspired by spirit. You know, uh, Watts is, is a trim tab community in that we, we kind of set the trend for like kind of West Coast gangsterism. And, and it's because out of, out of, the, out of the, the, the wounds come the real gift. You know, the, the struggles and the pains that people suffer from in this particular community um, has given us uh, like a second sight in a sense. And so we've uh, been able to um, uh, influence a lot, you know, as it relates to this whole gangsterism thing. Um, you know, Spirit basically told us that if we brought together the four major housing projects in Watts, we would create a domino effect, uh, a domino effect for peace throughout the whole city. So we, we started off because we know that the brothers in the neighborhood respect strength and, um, and anything that's weak, you know, is gonna get steamrolled. So we started marching in all of the housing projects and we would wear all black, um, you know, uh, we were, you know, uh, black nationalists. So, you know, we were heavy into, you know, Malcolm X and, uh, you know, James Baldwin's theories and, um, 
And so we bought these different type of, exactly, the Panthers. We bought these different type of conceptual frames to the community, along with this whole esoteric knowledge about um, how we were created in the image of the Most High. You know, in the neighborhood, we call each other dog, right? It's like, what's up, dog? Well, what is dog, dog spelled backwards? God. And so this is what we would make a, word, a, a play on words with folks. You know, that's who we really are. You see, what's up, dog? What's up, dog? What's dog spelled backwards? I'm like, that's who we really are. The graffiti on the walls, I'm like, hey, this, these are like the hieroglyphics in the pyramids. We just forgot our language and where we we're from. So we inspired cats. We captured their imagination with this esoteric kind of uh, framing of things and inspired folks to come and sit down at the table. And it was significant in that we got Jim Brown, um, who, you know, Hall of Football fame, great, you know, folks love Jim, who became like a real catalyst for the work. You know, so bringing Jim down to the projects, folks is like, Jim Brown, the hell? And then Jim taking us up to his house in the Hollywood Hills with the Nino Brown view, you know, um, you know, and, and provided all of the strategic investment on the front end. I mean, a little bit of money in the hood goes a long way. So paying for diapers, paying for funerals, paying for broke cars, you know, paying people's rent, all of those different types of things bought a lot of goodwill. And, and it inspired folks to say, okay, maybe we can, we can do this. Nobody wants to kill each other in the neighborhood, nobody. But we've been conditioned to believe that if you show any sign of weakness, you know, you get taken advantage of. People will prey on you. So we, we, we bought an alternative, you know, to that, that, that praying, that we can sit down and host an authentic conversation and we can shift and make different decisions. And we did that through this 15 chapter self-esteem life skills curriculum that we developed with Jim called AmeriCan. It's basically a short course in human development. We took individuals to the curriculum. We got a contract with the Department of Corrections and Rehab in the state, in which our program was in about seven prisons, and then we expanded to about 19 prisons in the state of California. So a lot of the homies was taking the class in the pen, communicating with homies on the street. We started classes in the street. So we started marrying this, this concept and idea. And you know, it took us, you know, about four years. And also, you know, Minister Farrakhan played a real strategic role because the Nation of Islam, you know, has been the vanguard of the black community forever. And, you know, have cleaned up more black men than probably any other organization on the planet, okay? And so, you know, Minister Farrakhan with the Stop the Killing Tour was an inspiration. We took about 25, 30 guys from our neighborhood to hear the message. Um, he was doing a tour all across the country. This was in uh, November of uh, 89. And about 1,500 Crips and Bloods from all across the city actually showed up to this conversation. And then we had the smaller meetings up at Jim's house. And then we developed a meeting with a relationship with Jim. We formed the company, Mayor I Can, you know, and it took us about four years of having strategic conversations. And, you know, we had to bring the killers to the table. And, and talk about some of the fruit now from that emerged from those meetings. Well, you know, the peace treaty you know, in 1992, April 28th, changed the quality of life in the neighborhood. Grandmothers began to walk the streets again, kids began to play in the parks again. Many kid, men became fathers to their children for, first, for the first time, in a sense that, you know, these four major housing developments, you know, there's always this kind of mystique, you know, of liking the other, because they live on the other side. So the girls and the Nickersons like the guys in the Jordan Downs and vice versa. And it would be many killings and violence and all stuff as a result of that. But, you know, children were born in the process as well. And folks couldn't necessarily go over there because we had a war going on. And, and when I say war, I mean a real war. You know, 30 years 
in LA County alone, over the past 30 years, we're talking about 25,000 gang-related deaths. Doesn't include those who have been permanently maimed, those who have been incarcerated for the rest of their life behind their participation. I mean, it's a, it's a real war zone. We've lost more lives in LA County than in the Palestinian-Israeli conflict and in the Northern Ireland conflict combined, okay? But because of these black and brown kids, you know, and adults, you know, and we live in a culture that is still very racist, you know, our voices have gone unheard to a, to a great extent. But, man, we, um, we, we started having, like, you know, these, these dialogues, and um, it was a... Well, I, w I was just curious about, you know, whether people either individually or collectively had a sense of mission about sort of rebuilding, restoring, revitalizing the neighborhood. Absolutely. You know, um, as I was saying, nobody wants to kill each other. Right. And so the peace treaty was actually organized with the idea that we wanted to bring an end to the killing in our community. We wanted to be the, the, the doctors, the lawyers, the coaches, those who provided those type of quality services to our families so that they can live a better quality of life. You know, this was the whole inspiration for it. Mm -hmm. The thing is, is that we just didn't know how to do it. And the Minister Farrakhan's, the Jim Brown's, um, these folks kind of helped us uh, bridge that gap, you know, um, uh, educated us about how to access our tax dollars from the system and utilize them to improve the quality of life for our families and our children in the neighborhood. So it seeded new businesses and the like? New businesses, new organizations and programming. I mean, all types of probably, you know, 150 new nonprofits sprung up. Because people don't even know about nonprofits, you know, and how they can be created, and you can access resources through foundations and through private contributions and through cor corporate, you know, interest um, to provide services in the neighborhood. We kind of sat back and we did, we waited for somebody else to come and and solve our problem for us. But then we realized that ain't nobody gonna come down here and save us. So we got to save ourselves. So the whole model of the peace movement was nobody can stop this war but us. You know, and Jim, Jim and his brilliance, you know, man, give lots of credit to Jim Brown. I mean, this cat, like I said, I mean, he's a total genius. I mean, he could have did anything besides play football or being an actor um, because he was that razor sharp. In the 60s, when folks was talking about civil rights, Jim was talking about economic rights, you know. Um, so these are the things that he kind of like instilled in us that he told us. And we, we made a 10-year commitment off the bat. He said, if you guys let me show you how to access your tax dollars to utilize them to provide quality services for your family and for your, you know, uh, for your community, he said, I promise you, you won't ever have to worry about how to get resources for the rest of your life. And a 10-year commitment, at the end of that 10 years, you know, this mentor and mentee relationship, you know, we had our necessary betrayal. And, um, and as a result of it, um, I've never looked back. I've never felt like you know, I don't have access um, or I don't know how to access resources in order to provide opportunities for, for my loved ones. Talk about that a little bit more. I, I assume you think of Jim as a mentor for you. Yes. Uh, talk about who have been the primary mentors for your life and work. Yes. And, and even a little bit, you sort of touched on the necessary betrayal. Yes. You know, some of what are some of the essential dynamics of that relationship? Sure. Um, I would say that the first, you know, significant mentor in my life absolutely is my pops, my dad, um, who recently passed in February. 
And my dad, although he wasn't like there all the time, he was always present. And um, so my pops kind of like laid the foundation for me. You know, old school brother joined the nation in 1957. Um, I've never known my father not to have a job or, 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 I mean, two jobs or a job in the business running simultaneously. I'm like, his blood definitely runs through my veins because I'm a total workaholic. You know, my dad would go on vacation and get a job. You know, <laughs> pops was hilarious, you know, um, and just always teaching, you know, a, a biblical and a Quranic scholar. You know, um, I was blessed. And my mom's, you know, my mom's has been an activist organizer all her life. At 74, mom's is still on the front line now, you know. Um, so I, I, I come from great stock, you know, in my family. And, and I would say that my first significant mentor um, absolutely was Jim Brown. Um, you know, Jim challenged me in a way that, uh, that, you know, no man has ever challenged me. I mean, I, I had lots of rhetoric because um, I'm an avid reader. I, I study a lot. And um, so I had, a, I had a, 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 like a pristine philosophy when I met Jim. And Jim just shattered it, just pow, you know. And Jim, his style of like kind of mentorship was to throw you in the fire, you know, <laughs> and, and let you burn and then kind of advise you as he's kind of turning you over, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and uh, just brutal, you know. Um, I would say, you know, he's uh, probably verbally and a little psychologically abusive, uh, definitely. Um, and, um, but, uh, you know, it, this is the wounds that he, he's lived with. And, and this is how I think that he's, he came to be the man that he is. Um, so this is the way in which he teach. So it's imperative that as, as, as his mentee, you know, you have to figure out in a sense for yourself, like, how to not take those things personal or they will destroy you. Um, you know, and that's how, you know, spirit is. Spirit is brutal, you know, on you. But Jim, um, I remember, you know, one of our first significant contracts in Cleveland, Ohio. No, no, but even before that. So we, we, got, we got a contract with the Department of Corrections and Rehab. And we were running our program in about 19 prisons here in the state of California. And it was our responsibility. I was the director of education. Um, my man T. Rogers was the chief of staff um, from the jungle. And um, we would go up and we would train all of the educators at the institution to facilitate the curriculum inside the jails. So we go up, and uh, so it's Jim, me, we got the director of education, uh, uh, Wanda uh, uh, Briscoe, who was there, and about 40 teachers and educators who were going to be facilitating our life skills curriculum. And so, you know, Jim puts me up there to, you know, to start you know, uh, the uh, philosophy purpose um, in the curriculum and do the feeling session and all that aspect of it. So, you know, man, I'm, I'm sitting up there. I didn't prepare. I didn't internalize, you know, the language and the philosophy purpose so that I could deliver it properly. And so I get up there and I'm reading from the book, you know, um, the American program, blah, 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 this and that and everything. And I'm reading this verbatim from the paper and stuff. And... Jim's like, Akila. I mean, the whole room is silent and stuff, you know, and I'm like, I looked up, I was like, yes? He was like, what the hell are you doing, man? In front of all these people, man. You know, I think I was about 23 or something, you know, I'm like, huh? I'm like, Jim is still embarrassing me like this, you know? And I, you know, I got an ego and everything too. I'm like, huh? He's like, tell us you're doing, man. He's like, you gotta read that thing with meaning. He was like, 
excuse me, everybody, but you know, this is how we prepare our young people to take it to the next level and everything. And he was like, he was like, you have to internalize this. So you didn't prepare. I mean, balled me out in front of all of these people, man. And I'm like, feeling like shit. So after we get through that day and we're, we're driving in the car, uh, headed back, you know, we were up at Tehachapi Prison doing the, the, the training. So we're driving back to LA and Jim is like going off and stuff. You know, you embarrassing us up there. Getting up there unprepared, reading from the thing, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, ah, damn. You know, and Jim is, you know, pretty like imposing and kind of, you know, <laughs> like scary and shit he can't be, you know. And man, I, you know, uh, but he was absolutely right. So, you know, I swallowed my pride and I told him, you're absolutely right. And I said, uh, I said, you'll never catch me like that again. So the, the, the weeks preceding that, man, I, I memorized the curriculum like word for word. Uh, internalize it so that I could put all of the right emphasis on on the, the the portions and then probably to this day I can if I look at it one time I could give you the whole piece you know and this was this was so from that day on he would Akila you know he would mess with me and that's how I saw it you know tell us the philosophy purpose and I boom 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 and Jim was like okay so then I started managing all of the contracts as executive director. We started a nonprofit, the American Foundation for Social Change, about four years later. And I was managing a nonprofit. So we were at some meeting, and Jim wanted me to uh, tell like how much the contract was, like where we were in the billing process, how much we needed to bill, all of this kind of stuff and everything. And I mean, we had about 18 contracts now. And he was like kind of going through them and asking me about them, and I'm like, flipping through papers, trying to find it and stuff. And of course, he balls me out, you know? <laughs> and then uh, tells me, see, you're supposed to commit all that stuff to memory. I'm like, what? I'm like, ain't nobody else off in there committing this stuff to memory. Everybody else is turning over to look at this particular project and how much has been allocated and stuff. But you know what? I was like, you're right. I committed it all to memory. So no matter where we went, you know, I ain't have to pull out a paper. Every time he asked me a question, boom, 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 boom. And this and that, boom, 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 boom. He was like, oh, this boy is sharp, you know, now. I, and, um, and then, you know, 10 years in, we um, had a tremendous amount of success. We in six, seven cities across the country, multi-million dollar agency. I'm traveling. I lived on the road for about four and a half years, setting up contracts in different states. Um, you know, when Jim couldn't be there, I would go and represent. Um, it was, you know, uh, you know just... Uh, it was a wonderful experience for me. And we had our necessary betrayal. Um, and, and, and I learned this term from who I would say is my second most significant mentor, Orlin Bishop, who is you know, also like my contemporary and one of my best friends, you know? Um, but I definitely call him a mentor um, on a spiritual level because Orlin is probably the most profound human being I've ever met in my life. Um, um, this necessary betrayal was that um, we, I had finally gotten to a point where I. Before you tell us this, tell us why necessary betrayal is an important element in a successful mentoring relationship. The necessary, the, the, the betrayal is necessary because it's, it's similar to this whole idea of like, you know, the mama bird and the baby bird, right? And then when the baby bird kind of like gets old enough, the mama bird kind of pushes the baby out of the nest so that you know, it, it gains its own wings and it finds itself and it learns how to fly. 
So either it, it flies or it hits the ground and it dies, you know? Um, but at some point, the baby bird has to be able to find and make its own way. Um, so there's a, there, this betrayal is necessary because it's, a, it's an initiation as well because you have to analyze and do that deep inquiry about you know, what brought you to that particular place. So, so you know, here it is 10 years later, um, I felt like I had arrived in, in my you know, understanding of the curriculum of the organization of significant relationships that we had developed over the years. And I was now venturing to bring contracts into the organization. And um, I had about, you know, maybe three or four contracts on the line. One I had been working on with LA County Office of Education and the probation department for years. Um, and it looked like, you know, this thing was about to happen. We were about to get like a $400,000 contract. So for the first time, I wasn't going to be subject to Jim's payroll and his browbeating and different things like that because now I was bringing in my own and raising my own resource, which would go through the organization. And you know, Jim basically told me that you don't have the capacity to bring in your own contracts. You see, you think, he said, people, people think they, that you know more than you actually know, Akila. I was like, what's this dude talking about? And, uh, you know, basically told me that I was going to be nothing but a pimp politician. Oh, really? Okay. You know, and, um, and, and told me, look, I'm just going to, he told me, I'm just going to be real cold-blooded. Um, you know, it's, it's done. You know what I'm saying? I want you to, you know, to go ahead and leave the organization and do your own thing. Now, here is an organization I co-founded, AmeriCan, okay? And I was like, uh, Jim, I was like, I helped build this organization. This is mine just as much as it is yours. You know, of course, you put all of the significant resource. You bought the celebrity. You bought many of the contract to the table. But I bought the labor. I bought significant relationships in neighborhoods. And this is after we organized the peace treaty and everything as well. And I'm like, you know, we, we gave the organization its, its recognition and its stature based upon the change we've made in our lives. I was like, I just want to benefit from that which I've helped to create. And, um, and he was like, fine, okay. You know, and then his attorney, this cat Richard Johnson at the time talking about, no, see, Jim owns the intellectual property. You know, and then he was like, yeah, it's Akilah, the program ain't nothing but a manual, uh, uh, the materials. And I was like, in a, in a, I was like, in a history, I was like, it's the history as well. And I was like, everybody knows me as American. And I was like, if I just go over here and say I'm starting something new without bringing that history along and without your support, I was like, um, you know, it could be major problems. Because I had these, you know, a contract with the city, a contract with the county, and one with the state, all in the hopper. And um, so we, you know, I told him that this thing has to be facilitated very cautiously. And um, so he agreed. And his attorney is like kind of trying to rush me through this stuff for whatever reason. I don't know. You know what I'm saying? But I'm like, I wasn't going to let it get to me. But through, but through that process, you know, I was able to um, facilitate the successful turning over of the, of, the, of the contracts that we had in L.A. County from Jim and also secure, you know, another million dollars in contracts, you know, through the county, city, and state. And it's like, um, you know, that was, you know, our, um, our, our kind of like split. And, you know, I've always, and, and I came back after that, honestly, 
because after you know three or four years of running the Community Self-Determination Institute and having the responsibility of having to make payroll, deal with all of the politics and all that kind of stuff, you know, man, I learned something about the things that Jim was saying in the past that, you know, um, that I, I didn't look at because, see, now I was the person. So it was significant. Yeah, no kidding. Shady, <laughs> do you need some water? <coughs> yeah, I need a second. Yeah. Or how unconscious, and he was just, yeah. because of who he was, you right. know, just pushing back. If you call him now, I mean, he would sing my praises and all that good stuff, you know, and he'll say that he was conscious about it. Really? I don't think so. <laughs> Jim is just a bitch. <laughs> mean motherfucking motherfucker. But yeah. it's like, you know, but I, I, I appreciate it, like, in retrospect, you know, when I reflect on it. I'm like, you know, and he'll tell folks, see, you know, I have to push you out and stuff and everything so you can do your own thing, you know. He says that and stuff, and I'm like, yeah, whatever. Thanks, fuck you. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jim, yeah, yeah, you know, for being psychologically abusive and verbally abusive. <laughs> Fuck you, too. Yeah. <laughs> but years later, I got to go back and tell his ass off, like, heavily. You know what I'm saying? We, I finally got an opportunity to say all of the things that I wanted to say, man. It's like, mm. you know, really call him on his shit. Well, you know, it's interesting <laughs> to me that, you know, the necessary betrayal, it seems to me, is only necessary if the mentee, him or herself, doesn't, in effect, make that happen on their own. Right. Because what will usually happen is they'll evolve to the point where it's like, what he's saying or what he's doing is full of shit. Yeah. You know? I don't like it anymore. And yeah. It's not who I am. I well, gotta go in a different direction. Well, that's the betrayal. So that's the betrayal. Yeah, but it could be initiated from the mentee as well. Oh, saying, absolutely. So it doesn't have to spring from the mentor. Right. Right. You know. True. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So. So you're good. Uh, yeah, I'm good. Okay. Yeah, I'm a. Uh, you know, I, I want to cycle back to. Okay. Oh, thank you, dude. Thank you. Yeah. You know, so this idea of, you know, uh, the wounds are your gifts. Yes. You know, it seems to me that, that basically, you know, there's five or six main lessons that any given initiation teaches. And that's certainly one of them. Mm. You know, and that not only that the wound is your gift, but how essential it is that you identify with it as deeply as you can and understand that your fulfillment in life comes from giving it. Yes. As freely as you can to Absolutely. others. Absolutely. You know, so I don't, know, I, I don't know if I have a question there, but did you have a response? To sure. Um, I would say the most significant wound in my life um, kind of uh, um, uh, inspired my, my transformative change. Um, I, was, uh, I was sexually abused as a kid. And, and admitting that for the first time in my life when I was um, in, uh, in my first year of college, my whole life shifted. I, I never questioned any of the violence that I saw happening in the neighborhood because ultimately it meant to question the violence that I experienced in my own household. And I didn't have language or, or the courage to do so. But when, when I exposed that deep secret, you know, and you know, exposing, the, exposing the, the, the shadow or the secret, you know, gives others permission to do the same. You know, and it creates um, kind of an opportunity for sacrament. And, and sacrament is the, is the absolving of the, of the sting that's connected to the, to the transgression so that one can actually um, do, the, do the proper analysis and inquiry without all of the, the emotions that are connected to it. So, you know, that, that experience 
you know, um, um, of, of discovering the gift in the wound in a sense. Um, um, uh, like once I exposed that secret, it set me on a whole journey. You know, it, it kind of makes me think about the alchemists and stuff, you know, because <laughs> I, I went on this whole path of trying to, you know, figure out like, um, why didn't anyone say anything, you know, because this, this whole thing around abuse is, uh, is one of, it's the big taboo of the culture, you know, um, and later on I discovered, absolutely, you know, later on I discovered that, you know, sexual abuse is a tool of colonization. It was a way of shaming people into silence and that very few people in the culture actually has actually escaped it, you know, so I, um, as I begin to kind of journey down that, that, uh, that road, um, you know, trying to make sense of what happened, you know, talking to all of my siblings and, you know, discovering that it happened to them. And then, you know, one day, um, you know, even having an opportunity, I mean, you know, first, I mean, you know, forgiving oneself, you know, um, is an initiation, forgiveness is an initiation, you know, uh, so forgiving myself and then having the opportunity to forgive the perpetrator, um, uh, I discovered that that in in, in mining the wound, um, I was able to kind of metamorphose the given idea about the experience. You know, that I don't condone what the perpetrator did to me, but I do recognize that that I have this capacity to to see deeply and to feel deeply into things as a result of it. I have this like level of clairvoyance, and people who have had a similar experience, I'm drawn to. You know, and I have this like like this deep sensitivity in a sense that uh, that that um, that gives me this um, ability to relate to people in a way that uh, that is, I would say, uncommon. Um, and, you know, so this this thing, you know, uh, this abuse that used to be my biggest shame, it was the albatross that actually prevented me from accessing um, or getting out of my own way has become my greatest gift because it's something that, that, that I, uh, I tend to give as much as I possibly can. Every opportunity that I have, I share the story because I know that I'm not my experience, you know? That the experience that I've had is informing who I'm actually becoming. So when I, when I tell people the story, I mean, like I speak in a room of, uh, of, of adults or high school kids and stuff, people literally freeze. It's, it silences the whole room because I'm telling this story and stuff, you know, about my experience in college and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and it's funny and stuff and everything. And then I tell them, you know, this woman that I had cheated on. And I mean, I lived my life out of this place of machismo. And, you know, I, 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 I broke this woman's heart. And I was inspired to do the, the first noble thing in my life, which was to tell her the truth. And when I sat down across from her, and I apologized, and she asked me, why did she do it? Did I do it? And I was thinking, and I was like, I don't know. Maybe it has something to do with what happened to me as a kid. And she was like, well, what happened? And I was like, I was sexually abused as a kid. And as soon as those words rolled out of my mouth, I mean, I was shocked. Because I had so thoroughly suppressed that in my personal life that I almost convinced myself it never happened. So all of a sudden, a flood of images in, in, in pictures like came into my imagination. So this remembering, you know, the bringing together all of the old, cause this is, that's the analysis and the inquiry. And what do you, tears, I'm just sitting there like, 
and, and she was like Charlie Brown's teacher, like womp, 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 because she was asking who, what, why, when, where, and I'm like, that happened. And then I realized how much it affected all my relationships. Every girl I had ever been with, I was trying to save because I wished that somebody would have saved me. So I started illuminating the patterns in my life, you know, and, and, and stalking those things that, that caused me challenges. <laughs> and, and, and seeking to bring, you know, balance to the imbalances, you know, um, the, all of the over promiscuity, all of the womanizing, all of the, the oogling of, of women and objectifying, all of those things, you know, throughout my life, I've been addressing like one by one, bringing balance to the imbalance because I'm like, you know, although we stopped growing like, you know, supposedly physically at 21, you know, all of the etheric organs are still, you know, developing and growing, you know? So, you know, I've been, you know, on this real journey um, to, you know, make sure that I don't come back after this life, you know what I'm saying? I'm like, I'm like, I'm paying my karmic debt, you know, and so that I can be more connected to my own destiny force. And, um, and it's, 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 um, it's um, you know, like it's intuitive in a sense now, you know, it's like, I feel like um, as a result of exposing those deep secrets, my, my intuitive voice has been amplified and I could hear it much louder. So when I, when I ask for questions, I mean, and, and answers to, to problems, you know, immediately, you know, like my intuition, the, the God in me, the spirit in me responds. And I'm now acting on it much quicker than I would in the past. You know, it used to be, you know, six or seven times, I'd be like, no, oh, stop what should i do and the intuition would say do this and i'll be like no nah, i ain't doing that what should i do you know i'm like that's the hard road i ain't trying to go down there and now i'm like it comes up man i'm i'm headed down the hard road you know because i'm like i know what's at the other end and, and talk about how essential it is that we assist young people in accessing their own intuitive voice so that they find their way through life similarly yeah i would say that it's 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 essential that we expose our deep secrets so that we, we as give elders. as elders, as youngers, you know, that we expose our deep secrets, that it's a, it's a gift exchange, that we, that we share the things that we're most ashamed of, the things that we feel guilty about doing, the things that keep us up late at night, that we share those things because it gives others permission to do the same, you know? Um, you know, this idea of sacrament, you know, that a lot of people think that it's born out of the Catholic Church, you know, but it's an old psycho-spiritual tradition, you know, um, in which the exposing of the deep secrets or the, the, the illuminating of the shadow, you know, has, um, when a person, like, really listens, because it's not always what we say, sometimes it's, it's actually what we allow ourselves to hear. It's when we really listen to a person, um, we, we give them an opportunity to, to expose their heart. And it's like um, that then kind of like um, creates more space in the heart and in the imagination for new things to enter, you know? Because this is, this is the place that we're trying to support young people to get to or adults to get to. Because I've, I've spoken at, at places 
And I've had like old ladies come up to me and say, you know, that story that you told like prompted me. She's like, I'm 67 years old and I have never told anyone what happened to me. And she said, I've had all types of health issues, psychological problems, all of these different things throughout my life because I've suppressed, you know, that shame and that guilt. Because, you know, like cancer, all of these illnesses and stuff, you know, if you cut a person over, you can't point to cancer. It's a shadow. You know, it's suppressed anger, rage, you know. Um, of course, it's a lot of the, you know, the toxins and stuff that we eat in food and everything as well. But mostly it's, it's kind of psychosomatic. And um, I'm like, we have to be able to create space, you know, um, in the culture for people to have authentic dialogue without judging them. And, and when I say judgment, I mean to not say, oh, that's good or bad, because they're both judgments. You know, it's about, you know, observing. It's about a beholding, a holding space for the highest possibilities and probabilities to emerge from, from the experience that that person has had. Well, to me, what, what you speak to is the importance of modeling. You know, the, and that's an essential element of any mentoring relationship. Yes. You've got to model the behavior that that's you right. seek in your mentee. That's right. You've got to be willing to take a step first. Yes. You know? Well, you know, one of the things that Michael Mee says is that uh, he's like, you don't choose your mentee. You know, your mentee chooses you. And he's like, you know, that relationship is a dynamic one. You know, because spirit, you know, it's like there's something in the, uh, in the, in the spirit of that individual that calls them to you. And sometimes it could be very volatile, you know, because spirit, you know, some people think, oh, spirit is nice and quiet and easy. No, spirit will kick your ass, you know, <laughs> will slap you and drag you all on the ground, you know, and you got to know when to cut spirit loose. Like, you got to know when, like, uh, okay, I got it. I got that lesson. I'm ready to move on to the next one. So, you know, uh, that mentor-mentee relationship is very, it can be very volatile. Talk about uh, what does it mean that we live in a mentorless society now, and particularly as it affects young people? Yeah, it's, it's unfortunate. Um, and do me a favor and name the subject, because my sure. questions won't be part of this. Sure. Um, the idea that we live in a mentorless um, society and culture is, it's, um, you know, it's painful to me to think about it. In, in that type of context. Um, yeah. I think that um, it, it goes back to, unfortunately, to, to manifest destiny. That, that, that's the first thing that comes to my imagination. We live in a culture in which this country was invaded you know, by a group of folks who saw the native people of this land living in harmony with the earth and thought that they really didn't know what they were talking about. Now, you know, we talk about sustainability and all this type of stuff and everything, permaculture, all of these things as if they were new. <laughs> and it's like this, no, people were doing this forever here. Here, in Africa, South and Central America, Europe, all over the world, you know, it was happening, you know, and there was a genocide that took place, you know, against Native American folks, breaking the, 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 the mentor-mentee relationship, you know, between human beings and between man and the earth uh, as well. Um, then the, you know, the enslaving of people of African descent, um, 
tearing families apart, breaking that, 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 uh, that indigenous or that cultural right to passage that people bought over from the country, um, from the old country. Um, and then the, you know, the, the spoon feeding of the lie of superiority and, uh, and, um, and entitlement, you know, to people of European descent in this country and forcing them to be bystanders to the dehumanizing experience that they forced, um, you know, native and, and people of African descent through. Um, we've collectively lost our souls as a result of the experience. And, and I think that we've been, you know, all of this time we've been trying to recover that, you know. Um, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois in his book, The Soul of Black Folks, you know, he talks about the collective suffering that we've experienced in this country as our actual birthright. You know, that we have a double vision, that we have a, a level of clairvoyance as a result of this, this wounding. Um, um, because we've all been collectively wounded, you know, um, you know, and there's no one to blame. You know, Orlin, you know, always says that history belongs to the ancestors. There's nothing that we can do about it. But what we can do about it is the present. So, you know, I'm like, we live in a society that, that, um, that despises authority, <laughs> that despises like, um, you know, mentorship um, in a sense, because, you know, there's been a breach that took place, you know, a few hundred years ago that has never been healed. And, and I think that as a, as a culture, this is, you know, this is where we find ourselves today, is how do we begin to, to heal this, this old like kind of rift, this breach, this, this fracture of the human spirit because of money, because of profit? What do you think we should do? I think that one of the things that we need to do is we need to have something like a, um, like a truth and reconciliation like commission. Um, or truth and restorative justice, not like South Africa, like South Africa but a little different. Because um, I think that that individuals should have an opportunity to go before a group of, of of healers and elders, and to expose all of their deep secrets and be given sacrament. You know, um, not just like you know. You know those who have been wounded and, and those who have been the, the perpetrator in many cases, like you know, like in South Africa. I think that was a beautiful attempt. I, I had um, the opportunity, um, or, or really a, a profound process. I had an opportunity to go to South Africa, and I took a group of young folks with me to specifically look at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and to talk to regular people and also people who were involved with the process about their experience and. You know, I met, uh, you know, um, these two brothers, uh, Tobacco, who um, was one of the brothers who killed Amy Beal, who was a Fulbright scholar, who was the only American, you know, to die in the, the uh, you know, apartheid wars out there in the early 90s. And, you know, uh, Linda, you know, and Peter Beal actually supported his amnesty um, because they said that, you know, that this is what Amy would have wanted, right? And um, in, in talking with, 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 uh, with Tobacco, he was saying that he was so motivated by the political atmosphere, he was so um, like charged by the white face that he didn't even take out the time to, to have a conversation with this woman to find out that they were on the same team, that they were both fighting for the, for the same cause. You know? And he, he says that he's forgiven himself. And he was like, and I still have the demons. I still have the, the flashbacks and the images in my imagination. He said, but 
I no longer see myself as a, as a murderer. And this is what's profound. It's like, we're not our experiences. You know, the things that have happened to us, the things that we have perpetrated, they inform our life. They don't, they're not who we are, you know? Um, and so, you know, I think that what needs to happen in this culture, and, and we're just starting to like kind of scratch the surface, you know? We have, we have a black president and a lot of folks was, oh, this is the post-racial era. I'm like, Obama won't even say black, okay? I'm like, this is no post-racial era, you know? Um, I'm like, we need to have an authentic dialogue around race in this country. The whole race and power dynamic, the whole subjective and objective view of it, you know, so that we actually expose the shadow and, and, and really support, you know, folks like, you know, and I would say especially like, you know, people of European descent, because they carry a lot of shame as it relates to what their ancestors perpetrated. And I'm like, they need to forgive themselves and they need to be forgiven. So sacrament needs to be, you know, uh, performed. Um, and essentially with black folks as well, you know, we need to forgive ourselves and we need to, we need to take our birthright. You know, that this experience that we've had in this country um, has allowed us to become the soul of this place. You know, um, I don't know what America is like without, you know, without black folks. I mean, you, I mean, you watch TV, everything. It's like, you know, we, we take, you know, strong, we make brick. You know what I'm saying? Consistently. And I'm like, you know, um, we, we need to have an authentic dialogue around this whole, uh, you know, subjective and objective view of race and power. I, I agree. I think that would be helpful. I'm, I'm, the focus of the film, though, is more on sort of what we can do at the practical level with mm. individuals and, and certainly individuals of color, but all and individuals, you know, Yes. European ancestry. You yes. Know, and I like what you say because I think the victimizers uh, are victims in a way too. Absolutely. Of historical legacy. Absolutely. But, but, but I, so I, I want to sort of refocus us on, on sort of more individuals and community. Sure. But, but, but taking the frame, you mentioned Michael Mead, and you know, one of the things that Michael said in, in, in the discussion I had with him was that. You know, he basically takes the view that life itself initiates, mm, right? Yes. And that we have to be ready, you know, when the young people come banging on our door saying, I'm fucked, I need help, and, and to help them through it. Yes. Which I get and makes perfect sense to me. And, see, to me, I don't see it as an either or. I see it as both and. Yes, sir. And, on the other hand, I see the possibility that there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of young people who can benefit from some kind of a program or whatever you want to call it, weekend workshop, right. whatever, where they can be initiated by a community, mm -hmm. you know, and, and brought to understand who they are as a young adult, as a young man and a young woman. Yes. That, so anyway, I, I realize that's a lot, but no, no. respond, please. You know, how, I think... What, I I think that it's a, it's a multi-tiered, simultaneous approach. Multi-tiered, simultaneous approach. Individual, you know, um, um, uh, uh, community, societal. Because if we don't address these things simultaneously, society will, uh, will continue to reinforce the old paradigm patterns and force people back into this old way of doing things. It happens all the time. We organize a peace treaty in the neighborhood. We change the quality of life in the neighborhood. It's transformative. 
in which individuals' lives are changed as a result of the experience. And you know what society says? There's no solution to gang problems. I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm like, there is a solution. We implemented it. We sustained it for 12 years. And you fought against us every way because law enforcement is invested in the problem. They justify their budget based upon how much killing happens in the neighborhood, not how many lives are saved, okay? So it's like we have a system that is invested in the problem because, you know, people make money off of addressing the symptoms, not the root causes, okay? So we, this, there's, a, there's a systemic dynamic that has to be addressed simultaneously as we're addressing the individual um, wounds in people's lives. We could have multiple programs, and we do have multiple programs. What's the fulcrum? You know, what's the tipping point? You know, for, for this thing um, around like rites of passage and mentorship to be able to, to, to take the next level, you know, and, and have a, a much greater impact on society. Um, you know, I, I think that, and that's why I think that it has to be multi-tiered and simultaneous. I agree with you, and I tell you, when it comes to changing society, I'm like, fuck it, man. That's, that's way too big. But changing individuals, empowering individuals, yeah. Well, I'm so down with that. And partly because the way I see it, if we can mentor and empower those individuals, they can join with us in changing society. Well, there's, there's something called the, 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 the quantum effect. You get the right individuals together and you help to facilitate their transformative change and it's like they'll change a whole culture. It will go from 10, I mean, you know, you look at hip hop, you know, 20 years ago, oh, that's rap music. Today, multi-billion dollar industry and not only that, you know, hip hop has revolutionized the way in which we think and see things, right? You know. People speak, you know, words, you know what I'm saying? And words, you know, kind of create images in the imagination. You know, Orlin talks about this thing, I mean, that is profound and had everybody at the table. I was facilitating this, uh, this dialogue one day and some of the older cast was talking about how rap music and hip hop is garbage and stuff. And then Orlin started talking about the, the rate of, of words in which we speak that actually creates the, you know, pictures in the imagination and ultra like. Like, damn, I never thought about it like that. You know, so, you know, you get the right people together. Because what is society? You know, society is just a collective thinking of the people. What is the state? It's a state of mind. You know, not only a, a physical geographic location, you know what I'm saying? It's also how in which we, how we believe. You know what I'm saying? So we live in a culture, a time right now where people are divesting their belief from the system. You know, um, you look at the census, you look at who votes, all of that, you know, people are divested. They're looking for something right now to be able to place their, their, their belief, you know. Um, and, and I think that, uh, that um, we're, we're kind of creating the new paradigm right now so that we could, we could capture the imagination of those individuals and be able to um, present, you know, like this is, this is the new way in which we're going. But it requires, as you said earlier, it requires a strategic investment in people, you know? We still live in a culture that wants to give money to things and mortar projects and all that kind of stuff and not invest in the human capacity, 
you know, in our ability to change um, and to transform, you know? So, you know, I'm like, I, I'm with you, you know, I'm with you 100%. Well, and you, you, know, you talk about hip-hop and recognizing the cultural value of hip-hop. I mean, part of it to me is uh, why keep a lid on and repress all of that energy and enthusiasm that come, and ideas that come from young people. Right. And that's what we're doing, yes. basically, societally. Yeah. And what we need to do is bless and empower them Yes. Into taking center stage yes. because God knows, you know, I'm getting older. Yes. I'm losing my energy and my capacity for making change. We need them yes. to come along and to and to take charge. Yes. Right? Absolutely. I think that you know, this generation of young folks are the ones we've been waiting for. A lot of times we were saying, Oh, you know, these kids, they don't know what they're doing. But our parents said that about us too, you know. <laughs> and their parents said that about them. So these young folks today, um, it's in their DNA. The thing is, is that I think that there is, you know, and I'm a conspiracy analyst, you know what I'm saying? Um, you know, I feel like, you know, for years, you know, our, our, you know, what people call conspiracy has been suppressed. I'm like, no, it's clairvoyance. I'm like, you know, and I'm, I'm affirming that that's what that is, you know? So I'm like, um, there is a concerted effort to suppress you know, individuals' capacity to thrive in the culture. There is definitely a concerted effort. Um, you, we look at what's happening in the government, a spying on everybody and all this type of stuff, and I'm like, you can't tell, like, you know, one black person who have had a black experience in this country, <laughs> like I said, COINTELPRO, all of the stuff that we've gone through, you know, the destruction of the Black Panther Party. You look at textbooks now, they still call them terrorist organizations. Ridiculous. When folks were just coming together trying to feed their families, feed their community, because we lived in a system that denied us opportunity. You know? And it's like, this is, you know, this is what people are, 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 are suffering through. So now we got 100,000 programs, people dropping $50 million, you know, uh, funds and stuff, you know, to try to invest in black men and boys, and, in, in, um, in, 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 you know, young men of color, and in young women, you know, of color you know, to, to try to create, um, you know, opportunities for them to thrive. We got affirmative action, you know, as if, you know, uh, like black and brown folks or minorities needed affirmative action. I'm like, no, the institution needed affirmative action because y'all was racist as hell and not letting people win. You know, it's not, it's not that we needed a, a hand up. We were already brilliant and gifted. You would let us in because you were racist. You know, it's like, I'm like, let's flip this thing properly and let's tell the right story. You know, because in that way, we'll show like how people have been thriving with nothing, you know, and will continue to thrive despite being on TV or being in a film or any of those things. People will continue to thrive despite it. And, and I think that, uh, that man, I, I was just at an event last night, um, Community Coalition did their annual fundraiser. Um, and I was on stage with, with, with four young men. Um, two African-American, two Latino, and these young cats told their story, man, and I'm like, you know, folks be, you know, they, you know, um, I get an opportunity to speak all over the world, you know, so folks is like, oh, yeah, Keila, we need you to tear it up, to bring it home, and blah, 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 and stuff, and everything, so, you know, I'm thinking, I got to carry this thing, and stuff, yeah, I'm, I'm a Keila, you know, I'm going to go up here and do this, you know, <laughs> and I get on the stage with these young cats, man, they rocked it. I was like, 
I was damn near tears up there, man, like choking up and stuff. I was like, <laughs> after they finished talking, I was like, I'm like, three generations. I'm like, of black and brown men. I'm like, not just surviving, I'm like thriving. I'm like, despite all of the stuff that we're suffering through every single day in the neighborhood, I'm like, you know, I was just humbled, man, you know, by how powerfully they spoke and how, how clear their message was. And they wrote these things, you know? I was like, wow, you know? And, and it, 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 really, it really moved me. I was like, I was like, our young folks out here are, are geniuses, man. And we're not giving them the time and the energy. Like, the generation, like, you know, uh, of black men, like, like my dad's generation, like Jim Brown's generation, they were the generation of the first, you know? Because, you know, society denied access, you know, to, to black folks forever. Post, and post-civil rights generation. Exactly. Yeah. You know, to, to have access to first this, to first that. And, and folks got caught up in the, being the first. You know what I'm saying? And also being like, hey, we can't rock the boat too much because they ain't going to let no more of us in. Right? So, you know, um, these cats like, you know, like Jim them, and I, I love them, you know what I'm saying, for what they stand for and for what they did. Um, but they hold on to the torch like this, man. They're going to die with the torch because they refuse to pass it to the next generation because they're like this. See, y'all ain't smart enough. Y'all ain't doing this and y'all ain't no. We're not doing it your way, you know? And your way, I'm like, you know, is the way in which you guys arrived. And we appreciate it and we respect it. Now we're going to do it our way. Pass the torch, bro. You know? So I'm, I'm 44 now. And... Um, you know, I was telling, you know, the young men last night that I'm old enough to know the history of, you know, of our, our forefathers and, and, and our ancestors and the things that they did. And I'm young enough to be still connected to this generation and to watch and to be a mentor. And, and I was like, you know, so I'm not going to say that. It's up to you. Y'all got to do it now. I'm like, no, we got to do it. I'm like, because I ain't going nowhere. I'm like, well, when it's time for me to pass the torch, I'm like, you best believe I'm going to hand it over. You know, and what are you doing in that regard now, in terms of laying the way for that? I mean, are you mentoring yourself and talking yes. about that? Because you know, to me, the frame for this is essential, and it's all about generativity. Yes. How do we pass the torch down to successive generations, and how we've lost the cultural capacity for knowing when and how to do that? Right. So, you know, this work. And we, we, we used to call it the work, but it's the intersection between spirituality and activism. You know, um, and my girl Angel Kilda Williams, she calls it transformative change, you know. Um, so this, this transformative social change work that we're engaged in um, is, is my life's work. And I'm like, if I tell you all of the things that I'm doing right now, you probably wouldn't believe it, you know. But I am managing like multiple projects, um, you know, from Question Bridge, which is a, um, an initiative that's focused on black men defining themselves for the first time in the history of this country. Um, with Jesse Williams, Delroy Lindo, Chris uh, Johnson out of the Bay, uh, Kamal um, uh, Sinclair over at, at Sundance, um, just, you know, Hank Willis Thomas, who's a, you know, a famous photographer. All of these, you know, artists who actually created this initiative, and um, and so I'm managing the LA campaign, and I get to mentor young folks 
to take over this piece. So, you know, I've, I've recently trained like four young men to be, um, to be on our street team and to be kind of like advocates of it. Last weekend, we were at the Green Festival, both Saturday and Sunday, and at the Taste of Soul, which is the biggest African-American event that takes place in the city of L.A. 350,000 people actually uh, last weekend on Crenshaw Boulevard in the Green Festival, you know, Kevin Danaher and, uh, you know, Lisa, you know, Gravitz and Denise, you know, I, I was there at the inception of that. Love those folks as well. Um, but, you know, we had our, our young folks at the booth at both places and stuff, you know, communicating the message. The two young guys, you know, that, uh, that I've been working with on a consistent basis, um, Julius and, uh, and Rashawn, just walked into the cafe one day and, you know, they asked, they, you know, asked about a job here. So I started engaging them in conversation and I told them, look, I don't have a job, but I got another project that I'm working on. So I told them about Question Bridge. I told them to go home and check out the website. So they came back and said, yeah, we checked it out. I said, okay, I want to be a part of the street team and everything. Yeah. I was like, okay, you know, we're, I want y'all to be at the festival, but you got to know something about this. You got to be able to communicate it. I was like, so I want y'all to go home. I want y'all to research. And when y'all come back, I'm like, y'all got to give me the spiel, you know? So, uh, so they came I, I back. I the Jim Brown lesson at that. Exactly. So they came back <laughs> and I was like, all right, give it to me. And they were like, um, well, it's about, um, and they really didn't know. I was like, y'all going to be talking to 15. I was like, there's going to be 300,000 people out there, man. Y'all going to be talking to all these people every day. I was like, y'all not going to be able to do it like that. I was like, you know, I'm glad y'all made up a few things and stuff and everything. And I was like, but that's not it. I was like, if you want to come, if you want to be down, I was like, I'm leaving Saturday morning, 8 o'clock. I was like, but before we get in the van and we roll, y'all got to give it to me. So they came back Saturday morning and gave it up. I was like, okay, you know? Um, uh, so that, that's, that's one example. The cafe, you know, Jackie Vedejo, you know, who is our morning manager, um, Luis, you know, um, who, who started this project out with Chef Roy at, uh, at, uh, at Jefferson High School, you know, started out as interns here. And now, you know, they, they pretty much run this place, you know? And, um, and eventually, you know, they'll be owners of this place. You know, so this is, man, this is, um, you know, I, I've been knowing Jackie for many years. My son, Terrell, who was murdered, was good friends with Jackie. You know, so we've connected. And, you know, I'm like, you know, uh, I'm, I'm very engaged on all of this stuff, you know. So, you know, we're, we're going through the books. We're going through the paperwork. We're, you know, we're challenging each other on all types of stuff, you know. So it's a, it's a real give and take, you know. And in, in everything that I do, I mean, you know, um, with my kids, you know, I have a bunch of kids, so I'm hard on them and challenge them and, you know, love them as well. Um, you know, still very engaged in the projects in the neighborhood. Every weekend I have about, you know, uh, you know, shoot, now we got about, uh, about 12 young cats that we employ um, who, who do a civic engagement process um, over in Beverly Hills, make a hundred bucks a day, you know, um, so we're, you know, my boy Reddy, he kind of manages that whole piece for us with, uh, with our Bloom Initiative through our nonprofit. Um, and then now we're about to start, um, we're moving around the corner into the Ralph Bunch house. Check this out, man. You know, Ralph Bunch, you know, Nobel Prize winner, you know, negotiated the whole Arab-Israeli, you know, peace accord. You know, when we did the peace treaty in the neighborhood, um, my brother Dao, um asked one of our partners, Tony Perry, to do the research, and he got the, the actual, the agreement. And he changed the agreement, the, the Egyptian-Israeli, you know, one, he changed that one and we utilized that as a document that we had all of the four housing projects assigned. 
So, you know, this, is, this work is rooted in, 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 in Bunch. And Bunch went to Jefferson High School up the street. His childhood home is around the corner right here on 40th in Naomi, you know? So um, my partner, Mark, who is one of the, you know, developers, like, that's revitalized this Central Avenue to its, you know, to its former glory back in the 20s through the 50s, um, they managed the house, the Bunch house. So we're, gonna, we're now going to rent the Bunch house. We're going to reestablish the whole Ralph Bunch Leadership Academy. And we're going to start training the whole next generation of interventionists in the city. Because as a result of the peace treaty, you know, the city adopted our work. You know, first they used to call it high-risk intervention, Bridges 2. Then now uh, they call it um, uh, GRID, the Gang Reduction Youth Development Program. About 13 agencies for a total of about $5 million are funded through the city doing gang intervention throughout the city. They're credited with all of the success of, of decreases in violent crime and murder. You know that as a result of this work, you know, LA is no longer on the top violent, you know, city list anymore. Um, uh, top 15, we're not on there. You know, we've had eight consecutive years in a row of decreases in violent crime and murder. We've had, in the first quarter of this year, a 30% decrease in, in homicides, uh, gang homicides and murder. And, and I'm like this, this is the legacy of the peace movement that we launched 20 years ago. And the average age of, and now we still got a lot of work to do because there's a lot of uh, inequities that's happening as it relates to resource, okay? Because that's always the last thing. Law enforcement gets a billion, 700 million, LAPD alone. Sheriff departments get a billion, 200 million dollars. And intervention gets six million dollars. Ridiculous. We're like, uh-uh. Interventionists haven't gotten a cost of living increase in eight years. You know, and LAPD gets one almost every year. We're like this. No, no. So now we're, we have a new battle to fight. But, but you know, um, we, we also realize that we got to train the next generation of interventionists. Because the average gang interventionist now is 40 years old. They G's in the neighborhood and everything. They still, you know, have a lot of influence. But we need, to, we need those young hitters. We need those 16s, you know, up to 27, like, in the ranks. Right. Yes. You know, it's interesting that you, you mentioned that about the police. Because one of the objectives for the film, and obviously has a lot of very grand objectives, but one of them is to help change police policy, mm -hmm. you know, at this the county, state, and federal level, so that we're not putting all of these resources into policing per se, yes. we're putting it into initiation and mentorship, because we won't need yep. to have so many cops. That's right. Know? That the crime will automatically go down as a, as a byproduct right. of properly initiate, initiating and mentoring our young people. You know, one of the things that we have to do with law enforcement, because it's a culture, and many of the officers who are the beat, there's, you know, there's always, a, you know, a battle between the beat officers and the brass, you know, um, in the department, you know, because they see them as politicians, and they be selling them out. That's how they feel, the street cops, you know. So one of the things that we're, we're framing this whole dialogue with, with my other day job, um, Californians for Safety and Justice, is we're looking at trauma and vicarious trauma. And, 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 you know, and hypervigilance in the neighborhood um, and how it affects law enforcement and community. So we're saying that, hey, you know, the way that we brought LAPD into the fold is that we're like, hey, look, you know, you guys see all of this horrific violence and stuff. You know, you guys are on the block every day dealing with all of this. Do y'all get counseling and therapy? No. It's a negative stigma in the department to get it. So we've uh, we lobbied in Sacramento. We got $2 million set aside from the Victim Compensation Fund, and this is recent, and we just put together a collaborative and actually went after the monies as well to provide healing and trauma centers in the community. 
And we want to be able to provide services for law enforcement officers anonymously so that they ain't got to check into the department because if they get one of those things on their record that, you know, that they having some issues, they pull them right off the beat and put them behind the desk. And then the next place is they out the door. Right. And, you know, a lot, of, a lot of these cops, you know, they become cops because they was getting bullied and beat up and stuff and everything when they was kids. Um, they have a lot of, you know, unresolved trauma in their personal life. So they're no different from, from the very people that they're arresting and beating up, you know, because they're taking their thing out on them in many cases, you know? Sure. So it's like this. So we're, we're going to include them in, t in this whole power analysis. We ain't even, we're not excluding you. We, we tell our folks, don't dehumanize the police by calling them pigs and all of that kind of stuff. You know, don't dehumanize them, you know, because two wrongs don't make a right, you know? And it's like, we can't solve this problem from a place of hate. We can only solve it from a place of love. You know, so it's a it's a whole education that's going on. We're, we're going to be hosting a big town hall meeting November the 21st at the uh, at the uh, at the Ron Deaton Center, the new police department, you know, over on like kind of first and uh, like central or something. Right. And we're going to be having, you know, we got uh, community folks on the panel. We got the psychologist and the therapist on the on the panel and we got LAPD. We got my boy Stinson Brown who was like the head of the gang unit now, and Stinson's son was murdered five years ago, you know? So it's like, and he's a cop, you know? And he's, he's like this, you know? He consistently talks about, man, that I didn't get the necessary, you know, healing services that I need to get through that trauma. And I'm like, so what do you think, you know? So we, we've been meeting with the mayor's office. We're actually going to set up a task force in the city and in the county that's informed by by survivors, by victims and survivors. And we have to change the language too because, you know, victim is a term that it's like, it's kind of like a law enforcement term. And people in the community don't identify with no victims, yeah. you know? So we, we're like, we're survivors, yeah. you know? And more folks, you know, feel like, you know, the term survivor speaks to that, you know, um, we're on our collective healing journey, you know? And, and not just kind of waddling in, in you know, victimization, you know? No, yeah. no, it's a, exactly. That's a huge uh, conceptual shift that any victim needs to take in order to empower themselves and move away from that status. Absolutely. And that's how we get more people involved as well. Let, let me ask you something. You know, it's, you know, when I came into this subject basically through what you might call, you know, sort of the, the, the men's side of the equation. How do boys in particular matriculate and become mm. responsible adult men? Yes. And my feeling has been for a long time that it's actually more important to, to initiate boys than girls hmm. for a couple reasons. One is potentially they're more dangerous because okay. they're uninitiated. And two, as long as we live in a patriarchal culture, it's still those suspended adolescent boys. They may be 40, 50, 60, 70 years old, but they're still, they're still <laughs> adolescents yes. who are going to have their hands on the levers of power yes. in government and corporations and elsewhere. I'm just curious what you think about that issue. You know, I think that, uh, that there has to be um, uh, uh, equity and balance. I think that this whole boy-girl thing, we're all the same, you know? Women are just as volatile and just as dangerous in the neighborhood as boys are, you know? And I think that it's more of a masculine kind of feminine pole because we, 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 we carry both within, you know, the, the human body. And, you know, you have some men who, are, who lean more towards the feminine side and some who lean more towards the masculine side. And same with, with women as well. 
um, I think that uh, that there has to be parity, you know, in that pro in that process, um, because I think that uh, that if we leave women out, you know, of this whole right to passage process. Well, it's not about leaving them out. It's about where an emphasis might be. Right. Here, and you may, and you yeah. feel like there's there shouldn't be an undue emphasis. No, nah, I don't think so, because um, also you know there's a there's a there's a cultural kind of split as well. Uh, and, and I think it's always necessary to, to kind of speak to that because we don't live in a melting pot. You know what I'm saying? We do not. You know, uh, it's like, you know, um, we live in a very racialized culture, you know, and, um, and white folks are seen different, brown folks, Asian folks, black folks. I mean, we're seen different. We have different type of cultural influences and everything. And see, um, and, I, and I'm going to speak specifically for the black community because I know the black community is a matriarchal community, you know, um, black, you know, Black boys and girls were raised in reverse roles in our culture, and it was out of necessity because if the if the if a black boy was raised like you know being um, brilliant and outspoken and you know proud, he would get killed immediately in this culture. You know, either hang back in the day, and now you know you get put in prison. You know, so the black woman was the the, the prize and the defeat of the black man, and she was given all of the opportunities. You know, and um, and so as a result, you know, the girls were raised to be, you know, um, smart, you know, and, um, and, you know, brilliant and, and beautiful so that they could access, you know, the services and everything so that they could support the family, you know. And, and now that, that, that black men have really, like, have stood up, there's not... You know, it's a whole psychological thing, but not so much. A, it's, I mean, the physical thing is still there as well, but it's more psychological than it is physical. Mm -hmm. This thing around kind of, you know, uh, lack of a better term, slavery in this culture. Um, there's starting to be some, some, some parity, you know, and they're looking to reconcile their differences so that they can work better in community. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's, uh, it's, it's similar, like, you know, in other cultures, you know, but I think as long as we play on, you know, um, that, oh, boys need it more than girls or girls need it more than boys, we're doing a disservice. You know, we got to we got to equity. We got to provide the exact same service for both groups. If we focus on one, we're doing a disservice to the other. You know, we got to focus on them both simultaneously. And we have the resource. We have the resource, you know. So I'm like, you know, I don't, you know, yeah, that that thing right there, because I tell you, man, some of the homegirls in the neighborhood is vicious, bro, you know. And, um, uh, you know, if you look at what's happened, in, especially in the black community over the past, like, you know, 15, 20 years, um, young girls are filling up the jails, you know, at a rate 10 times out of boys. Okay? Really? Yes. 10 wow. times. Okay? And young black men are increasingly becoming the primary provider for their children. Most of the young cats that I know, you know what I'm saying, are the primary providers for their children. You know, and their girls are, you know, in prison, using drugs, or they might be in love with another woman. You know, um, it's like, you know, there's, there's a real shift that is taking place, you know. It's, and um, so you see it on the ground before it ultimately, like, spreads all out there. But, yeah, it's happening, man. Mm. You know, so we got we to gotta have it, you know. Um, yeah. You, you, know, you know Will Keeping? You know Will uh, Keeping? I don't think so. Uh, I don't recognize the name. Yeah, he, he's doing this whole thing around uh, 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 
gender equity kind of like training. Um, it's a it's a profound concept and idea. You know, um, I think that they still have you know a lot of work to do with it. But I think that uh, that he's on to something. You know, um, I met I met Will Keeping through. Um, he's here in LA. Uh, no, he's not here. I think he, he might be in Boston or something, but he does these trainings all across the country. But I met him through, um, what's that group? Um, uh, out of, uh, they're in Kalamazoo, uh, Michigan. Um, it's, a, it's a big foundation that was created by this guy uh, who used to own the, uh, the Red Sox or something, and he endowed it. Uh, man, what is it called? Uh, Lynn Twist is actually on the board of it. Oh, really? Yeah, um, I can't think of the name of it, but oh. but yeah, they fund a lot of work around love and compassion and all of that type of stuff. It's it's interesting. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that because you know one of the ideas that's sitting with me is that, I mean, you know, new age culture kind of drives me crazy most yeah. of the time, and it's partly because you know it, it kind of it, it can over superficialize. Mm -hmm. uh, what's needed for real maturation and growth yes and that you you, you can't just always focus on the like uh, on the light and the goodness and blah 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 right. and you know hallelujah we'll be saved <laughs> yeah. you know you have to do the soul work right? that's right you have to do the grief work you have to go into that's the ashes right. you have to go into the wounds and until you come to terms with that mm. you're not going to be prepared for much of anything in my right. view right you know because you're just going to repress all that ugly nasty, dirty stuff. Mm -hmm. and, and what kind of model are you going to be for people? Right, right. Um, yeah. Anyway, so that's, I, 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 I get it that you sort of already feel that way, but I don't know yeah. if you want to respond to that. Or, uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've spent, uh, you know, some 15 years, you know, working in, in kind of like the new age community. And um, it's interesting because I felt like in that community, I was always kind of managing the shadow. You know, um, and I just recently heard that somebody has started a whole thing around doing shadow work. I was like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> I was like, it's well, funny. Well, Barry's been doing it for almost 20 years. Really? Yeah. Okay, oh, okay. Yeah, that's, to me, that's really vital and important work. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and there's a lot of shadows because, uh, you know, um, I like to try to illuminate the shadow, uh, you know, in, in all of my relationships. So, you know, in, in, in some of these um, circles that I would run in, um, you know, folks would, you know, say things or do things that were just racist. And, and I would say, I'm like, you know, I, I feel like, you know, I'm the kind of black, I, I don't dance, you know, I'm a black, I don't dance. And I'm like, and I don't make excuses for you. Like, oh, no, it's fine. I'm like, you know, no, that right there is racist. And they're like, oh, you're calling me a racist? I said, I'm not calling you a racist. I'm saying that is racist. And I'm like, listen, I'm like, I want you to hear this. I'm like, because I'm like, you're going to be in circles with other folks. And I'm like, and if you say that, like this, this, this woman just told me at the Green Festival, she was like, see, I'm colorblind. I was like, that's a racist statement. Okay. I was like, we're talking about implicit bias and stuff, you know, I'm like, <laughs> and I'm like, and, and I'm like, I said, that's a racist statement. And, and I'm like, and I'm like, probably the other black folks that you're around probably wouldn't tell you, you know, but I'm like, don't say that. I'm like, because after you leave, they'd be like, what the hell is he talking about? You know, I'm like, we have to be lifting each other up, you know, and supporting each other, our healing, you know? 
And I'm like, because I know that, you know. And not only the cultural and institutional right, shadows, right. racism and sexism and all the isms, but also the personal ones. That's right. You know? And I'm like, you know, I'm like, I'm not here to tear you down. I'm here to lift you up. I'm like, because I see you as an ally. And it's like, I'm like, you know, the, the more balanced you are in the wounds in your life, you know, the better for me because we're mirroring each other, you know? So I'm like, yeah, I'm like, you know, pay attention to that. You know, and, and that's just a small example. I mean, they are like, they get way out, you know, um, way out, as you know, you yeah. know, because we've been in this community forever doing this work, you know, yeah. so, yeah, yeah. yes. No, no, I hear you. Well, listen, I, 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 we've talked so long. I, I, I want to uh, ask, actually, Remy, too. I don't know, if, did she go move the car? or She went to move the car because it's street cleaning. Yeah. Oh, gotcha. All right. Okay, is there anything that comes to your mind that uh, you, You'd like more clarification around, or questions that you feel haven't been answered, or just curiosities you have? No question is a taboo. Anything. Um, well, given your experience, you know, with being and people that you've met with being jumped into gangs, you could talk a little bit more about what was positive about it and what was negative. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I would say getting jumped into a gang is essentially um, they, they use this term like you got to have skin in the game, you know, um, and that's the positive aspect of it. People have to they got to test to see how far you're willing to go, you know, um, because you know folks are living on the edge. Um, not necessarily because they want to in some cases. Sometimes, you know, folks is robbing and stealing and, and killing and stuff in order to survive. Um, and this is because of what they know. And I'm not, I'm not judging it. I'm not saying if it's right or wrong, you know? I'm saying that this is an experience and this is, it happens. Um, but I would say that, that so one of the, one of the things that, uh, that, um, that folks feel like one must have in that culture is that you have to have skin in the game. Um, now, it's, you know, um, it's all messed up. You know, gangs aren't sophisticated in any way. It, it, it's mostly all based upon wounds and, and problems. Um, it's totally dysfunctional. Uh, I hear law enforcement talking about gangs are, you know, are like the mafia, that they're centralized and organized. I'm like, <coughs> be serious. I'm like, if gangs were centralized and organized, you would be out of business tomorrow, you know? Um, I'm like, no, people are living totally out of their wounds. Um, and it's all based upon survival. Um, so one of the beautiful things about, about this experience is that also it creates camaraderie. Because young folks, they, they, they fight. You know, uh, when you don't have the words to articulate like your feelings and frustration and everything, it, boom, you know, there's lefts and rights and hooks flying. Um, and I think that it builds character. Um, I think that folks find out real quick who's good with the hands, who's good, you know, with the mouth, and who's good from the hip. And um, it makes a difference. Um, uh, I tell you, when we organized the peace treaty, when the killers got involved with the movement, that's when everything shifted. And so I'm not, you know, I know that, you know, this idea of killers in the neighborhood, I mean, it, I mean, it, I'm like, I think it's stupid, 
you know, um, but it's a micro of what's happening in the larger society. I mean, you know, they're just imitating what they see happen on TV. It's John Wayne, George Bush. I mean, those are the biggest killers on the planet. The U.S. is probably, um, if we define terrorists in an international court, the U.S. would be at the top of the list. Okay? So, you know, folks are just doing what they see. But um, when the killers got involved with the game, because, you know, we, we come around the table and we're having a conversation about let's stop the killing and everything like that. It's only like three or four cats that's doing all the shooting. Okay? And so those shooters from that neighborhood, they want to know, hey, if I stop shooting, will he stop shooting? Can you bring him to the table? You know? So I'm like, okay, leave your gun at home. We're going to go get him. So here he comes. He, they come to the meeting. It's like this. Oh, man, here he is. What's going on? What's going on? And it's like... Hey, look, man, on behalf of the movement and, and for the sake of the peace in the neighborhood, I'm going to put my pistol down. You know? Okay, I'm going to put my pistol down. They shake hands. It's like this. Everybody is happy. You know what I'm saying? People start celebrating. Because in, in these cats, the shooters, it's like this. So now you got them as an ally. Because you got a lot of cats that be faking and perpetrating in the neighborhood, causing problems and all kinds of stuff. Now, his mama probably can't tell him what to do. You know, this kid. You know, um, he's fucking up doing robbing houses and all kinds of stuff, and nobody can tell him what to do. But him right here, the shooter, hey, you better knock it off. Okay, it's done. Because he already know that cat plays for keeps. If I told you already, I'm gonna come and hit you upside the head later. You know, and that, it made all of the difference in the world. You know, so the, the cats, who, who have that initiation of taking a life. Um, if they can forgive themselves and not define themselves as a killer, they have so much to give back. And, and they have, and they do, you know? So many of the interventionists in the neighborhood, you know, some of them were shooters, you know, um, the majority of them was just real dudes. Um, in the neighborhood, but um, yeah, they make all of the difference in the world. Yeah, uh, yeah. So there's no throwaway. There's no throwaway like kids. Nobody is to be thrown away because everybody can be um, uh, redeemed. You know, everybody can be redeemed. So um, you know, society. That's why I think I, I call it a truth and restorative justice commission because. The, even even the shooter, he has to be able to reconcile with you know with his victims, you know, um, and you know there's something really profound about that, you know, about you know reconciling with the folks that you've harmed. Um, it, it informs the life. It informs you know also the person who is actually receiving it as well. Yeah, I have a thought about that, but before I go there, I wanted to ask you if you have anything that came to your mind that you wanted to ask Akila. A follow-up or a new question? Um, just, I'm just curious about the, the, the mentor process, because I sort of, like, or the, the idea that what you're talking about is specifically coming from, you know, Watts and, and you know, sort of... Can't wait to hear your answer, because I got mine. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a story connected with that, too. But, you know, I won't tell the story. I'll just tell you what I think. <laughs> it's just like, you know, um, 
You still got your like, yeah. Yes. Huh? The fridge is cracking your style. I know, huh, man? <laughs> We've been uh, refrigerated kind of everybody's style now. <laughs> it's, we're gonna, uh, we're gonna have to stop because it's, it's noon, so you're gonna. Okay, yes. uh, and we still have the, the fridge on, but you're yeah, gonna. Yeah, the fridge's not gonna cut off. It's not gonna cut off. Okay, yeah, and please answer to me. Okay. Um, yeah, I think that the way that we bridge, like, kind of. Uh, affluent and like kind of you know poor communities is that we have to remove the illusion you see because um, the, the the root cause of, of like you know this disconnect in the culture is the the sexual physical and psychological abuse that we've experienced actually in the personal life and it gives kind of like you know birth to all of the other problems that we see so on the extreme um, in a place like Watts that sexual, physical, and psychological abuse expresses itself in the form of homicide. And in affluent communities, suicide. They're just opposite sides of the same coin. You know, but we have this illusion that we create in the culture that because you have money or because you have things, it somehow gives you, it allows you to escape, you know, the reality of the, the shit that you suffer in your, you know, in your childhood, you know. Um, so it's like um, nobody's escaped. You know, but we, we, you know, the U.S. is um, is very good at creating illusions and separations and this whole idea of class and all of that. But the reality is, is that nobody has escaped this whole sexual, physical, and psychological abuse in the culture. No one, you know, and um, and all of the violence that we see in the culture emanates from that. You know, whether it's um, inflicted on someone else or if it's self-inflicted. You know, also in influent neighborhoods, and it's now coming heavily into communities of color, it's like you have the whole psychotropic, like, kind of drug thing. You know, folks is on Valium and Zoloft and all of this type of stuff. You look at all of these mass killings that's taking place, 48% are being perpetrated by, you know, white men in many cases, right? And, oh, yeah. I think it's much higher than that. Yeah. Well, this was some statistic that I got not, not too long ago. But 98% of them are with individuals who are, on, who are on medication. You know? So how have, uh, you know, like, um, you know, affluence been able to kind of maintain the illusion? Is that they're disconnected and they're not here because they're on medication. You know? And, you know, and in communities, you know, poor communities, you know, people's stuff is all over the lawn, you know what I'm saying? So you can't hide it, you know what I'm saying? So the camera comes down and focuses on this. Oh, this community is dysfunctional. I'm like, no, that community is just as dysfunctional, except they got big gates and big walls and stuff, so you don't see it. And, you know, I mean, some of the, some of the, the, the fluent kids that I've um, connected with over the years, I mean, the, the things they would tell me that was happening in their lives, you know, and how they couldn't say anything, because if they said one thing, they got disowned. You know, and that means that they got cut off from their family inheritance and all that type of stuff. Whereas in the hood, there ain't no family inheritance, so you're telling everything and all your business, you know? So it's, it's the same. We have to remove the illusion and, and just talk about, you know, what, what's really, you know, the common denominator of it all for, you know, for, for us as Americans in this culture. Which is, to my way of thinking, everybody getting initiated and mentored. I mean, that, that what you just said is the perfect argument that I always make basically yes. for why 
all kids need it. Don't tell me, oh, we're from a good family and a good right. neighborhood. Right. Your kids need it just as much or more. That's right. The likelihood of drug abuse uh, and, and dysfunction due to drug abuse goes up with the income of the family. That's right. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. So yep. you're not escaping anything. Not at all. Yeah. You know? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, all right. Well, I, I hate you, but we need to park it. So let's park it. <laughs> Thank you so Great. Much. Oh, man, I appreciate yeah, it, Frederick. Yeah, yeah. This is good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Thank you, brother. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, really. Yeah. So we're. Yes, please. Yeah, if we could just sit for just a minute. Sure. Actually, we probably should get it both with and without the, the fridge if we can. We just need uh, silence for a minute to sure. just get the background sound. Okay. something in there that catches the drip that just so I don't hear the dripping like just put a spoon so it catches it or something mm, well it's like dripping into the can you can you use a spoon to like direct it onto like this so it like goes down the side of the thing Okay. 